the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, June 9th, 2021. Over the past couple of days, I've been speaking about the lies of the left versus the lies of the right, the dangers from the left versus dangers from the right. I suppose one could look at the past several years to see what the right, when it has power, does or will do. It will, first and foremost, resist that man can control nature. The right will resist that children should be empowered to change their gender. The right will support economic policies that understand that making life easier on the employee class can only be accomplished by making life easier on the employer class. The modern right doesn't like radically Islamist terror-sponsoring countries. It believes America is more than an idea, but a place and a people, a place and a people worth protecting from the border here to the protection of Americans and American interests abroad. That's what an extreme conservative believes. We think there are two races, as Viktor Frankl put it the decent and the indecent. In other words, really one race, the human race, with humans naturally to be assessed and judged based on their behavior. We think race does not determine thought or thinking or character. We know that it was a belief system, not a race-dominant characteristic that led to the slaughter of millions of Jews. We know there were bad Germans and good Germans, but we knew the country supporting and governed by evil ideology must be treated as a country governed by evil ideology, irrespective of the race or ethnicity of the people, in this case German. As Aristotle put it in an interesting line of thought in Book 3 of his Nicomachean Ethics, there is a difference between a good citizen and a good man, especially in a bad regime. He raises the question of what a good man is in both a good and bad regime. A good citizen in a bad regime, for example, may obey the Constitution and laws as a citizen, but not as a good man. In other words, a good man may be a bad citizen in a bad regime, but in a good regime, one has to be both. Fidelity to laws and country is not only good citizenship in a good regime, it is good manhood, good humanhood. In other words, the good man is a bad citizen in a bad polity. By the same token, a good man is a good citizen in a good polity, and a bad man is a good citizen in a bad polity or regime. Leo Strauss discusses what makes such thing, quote, to get rid of this danger once and for all, to reconcile man absolutely to any established order, the significance, if not the existence, of universal principles has to be denied. This is to say to get people to behave as good citizens 
in a bad regime, one had or has to dispense with universal truths. One has to become a situational ethicist or what we sometimes call a relativist. Strauss would go on, this is from his lecture on natural right and history, to state, quote, this relativist school of thought has succeeded in discrediting universal and abstract principles. The only standards that are possible from this point of view are of a purely subjective character, standards that we have no support other than the free choice of the individual, close quote. Well, that is where we are. Fascist can mean anything subjective, as can tyranny, as can gender, which is the essence of human nature. It has all been relegated and is being relegated to the subjective without increase, with increasing majorities, the only end of which can be the total elimination of universal or abstract principles. This, of course, would be why humans with names like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can say that among the other problems they plan on tackling to address – with regard to the border crisis, are such things as earthquakes and hurricanes, man's triumph over nature, or relegation and resignation to any understanding of human nature, any, which by definition voids all distinctions, distinctions which are necessary in any comportment of human society, philosophy, or for any understanding of civilization. As Daniel Moynihan put it, we must know deviancy to know its opposite. As Aristotle put it, the task of philosophy is to teach loving what is noble and hating what is base. That is impossible without universal and abstract standards or distinctions. Distinctions such are, as outlined in our Declaration of Independence are founding. The notion, for instance, that all men are created equal means at once that not only are no humans more privileged than any other, but that we are universally equal based on our inequality before God. And, of course, as distinct from animals. When humans act like God, other humans are relegated to be treated like animals. That's what happens when you blur or lose distinctions. The natural order fails. Consider this Nazi propaganda film, The Eternal Jew. It has scenes spliced back and forth of Jews and rats, teeming rats, teams and teams of rats. The point of propagandists' propagandists' point is to move the mind's natural notion of a human being, in this case a Jew, to be as bad as an animal, in this case a rat. For once you can turn a human into an animal, then you can, as a human, do what you would do to that human cum animal as an animal by either enslaving it or slaughtering it. Ironic to me is that the progressive left wants us not to appreciate the above, but thinks our American history, based on the above understanding of natural right, natural law, and equality is simply a fraud, false, which makes me ask what it is they think our founding is about. And so when you dispense with absolutes and standards, you can be arbitrary and thus pick anything and date you want your founding to represent, including the date. Once you dispense with standards, once you embrace relativism, once you conflate beauty and ugly, right and wrong, or redefine it, you have conflated and redefined your society. Again, as Karl Marx put it, the point is no longer to understand history. It is to change it. So back to where I was, dangers from the right. Dangerous from the left, 
all of the above explains what the right thinks and wants. By and large, everything else emanates from those things. It's also the things we're most worried about. It's not, as Barack Obama put it yesterday, fear of white loss of power. What a slander. It's about loss of something much bigger that despises and rebukes any notion of racial power, white or black. What are the dangers of the right? Well, let's recall our extremism in the defense of liberty. Is extremism in the defense of liberty. It's not extremism in the defense of extremism. What are the dangers from the left? Contrarily, I would argue true extremism in the defense of extremism. If changing a country's founding date is not extreme, I don't know what the word means. But not since the French Revolution has that been tried anywhere, so far as I know, outside of the novel 1984. And the two methods of actualizing extremism are via lies and citizenship. Revisionism and propaganda are part of lies, just so you didn't think I neglected them. They are the decisive parts and elements. But dangers from the left beyond the extreme of the extreme of date changing and revisionism includes the notion that to be colorblind is to be racist, that America is systemically racist, that police target black men, that men should be able to compete in women's sports and schools, that men can menstruate, that pronouns can be arbitrarily selected and changed as can gender, as should children be able to make those choices, that Donald Trump colluded with the Russians to win the 2016 election, that terrorist states and organizations that target Americans and their allies should be funded, that children should be taught to think in racial categories, that children should be taught to think in racial categories as young as two years old, that children should be taught to think about gender and gender fluidity, and that children should be taught to think about gender and gender fluidity as young as kindergarten. That fathers are unnecessary, that the idea of family should be disrupted. I could go on and on, but it reminds me of Thomas More's line, I show you the times. Thus we come to note the fiction that isn't fiction of 1984, but actually an actualization of it. To wit, Orwell writes of the memory hole, what happened in the unseen labyrinth to which the pneumatic tubes led did not know in detail, but he did know in general terms. As soon as all the corrections which happened to be necessary in any particular number of the newspapers had been assembled and collated, that number would be reprinted, the original copy destroyed, and the corrected copy placed on the files in its stead. The process of continuous alteration was applied not only to newspapers, but to books, periodicals, pamphlets, posters, leaflets, films, soundtracks, cartoons, photographs, to every kind of literature or documentation which might conceivably hold any political or ideological significance. Day by day and almost minute by minute, the past was brought up to date. In this very way, predictions made by the party could be shown by documentary evidence to have been correct. Nor was any item of news or any of expression which conflicted with the needs of the moment ever, ever allowed to appear on film or on record. All history was a palimpsest, scraped clean and reinscribed exactly as often as was necessary. Close quote. Hold that in mind. Yesterday, the U.S. government released an official report on the Capitol 6, January 6th riots. 
It's titled Examining the U.S. Capitol Attack. Twice this United States Senate report states these exact words, this sentence, quote, On January 6th, officers faced violent physical and verbal assaults. Three officers and four others individually ultimately lost their lives, close quote. Three officers lost their lives either on or as a result of January 6th. This is a lie. Two of those three committed suicide and one had a stroke unrelated to January 6th. But that is now the government report, irrespective of facts. Three officers lost their lives. As soon as all the corrections which happened to be necessary in any particular number of the times had been assembled and collated, that number would be reprinted, the original copy destroyed, history brought up to date, day by day, minute by minute. And in this way, the prediction made by the party could be shown by documentary evidence to have been correct all from all the from 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 the very beginning think about that chronology first all the corrections assembled and collated like the original narrative then the alteration of inconvenient facts known as editing or censorship then a rewriting and re-editing to embrace the first party ordained assembled and collated narrative now who do you fear more they who wrote a history of America called the 1776 Commission or they who took down all reference to that report on day one of their new presidency. You may tire of the references to Orwell. There's a reason, however, we cannot tire of understanding our opponents as they understand themselves. And there's a reason Orwell wrote his book. It turned out to be in the realm of the imaginable, as is so true of the best of fiction. But there's a reason not to tire of understanding that. The dreaded imaginable is present. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Mike is in Phoenix. Hi, Mike. How are you? I haven't talked to you in a long time. It's nice to hear your voice, sir. Thank you. I uh, wanted to comment on Karl Marx. And one of the reasons you're seeing what you're seeing happening today is a result of his writings in the latter half of the 19th century. And one of the things he was so disappointed about and so terribly distraught over was the inability of the French revolutionaries to break the bonds of French nationalism. And they tried to do it by attacking religion, and they tried to do it by attacking their Franco spirit, but they failed uh, in breaking it. And they thought that the workers would unite underneath that, and they were wrong. Unfortunately for the rest of the world, a direct response to this socialist movement erupted in Eastern Europe around 1880, shortly before he died, and culminated itself after World War One. and that was the eruption of fascism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The reason socialists are so afraid of fascism is national socialism is the direct antithesis of socialism from a nationalist perspective. Socialists and communists are looking for worldwide domination on their comradeship, but fascists are looking at national interests and their socialist behaviors. 
that's their struggle. And by trying to break down our national bonds and breaking down our common interests, the people on the left have created these crises. That's exactly what this is, and nobody is willing to talk about it in that context. One of the um, one of, one of the interesting things that <clears throat> that you're pointing out, Mike, in the sense of no one willing to talk about it, is it seems almost as if we should have two competing visions of economic and political um, uh, framework or firmament. And one should be basically uh, something like capitalism and free enterprise, which is what most of us assume is the opposite and counterpoised to organization, socialism, communism. Those tend to be roughly the way people see economic and political uh, regimes or regimens, right? right now and for some time. And one of the things that I think the socialists in America and the communists of America have a problem with is they know that their political um, uh, their, their, their political strength, their political power derives from condemnations of capitalism and free enterprise. Uh, if you listen to Elizabeth Warren, if you listen to Bernie Sanders, if you listen even to Nancy Pelosi when she's talking economic or tax policy, and I haven't even gotten to the squad yet, but if you listen to those three or four, now add the squad, six or seven members of the Democratic Party who are you know some of the most popular, it's nothing different than you would have read on a socialist or Marxist website in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or even for that matter today. It is the same exact thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm saying you would have read it in the 1920s. I mean, in this country, we're misinformed or miseducated to believe that fascism erupted solely in Italy, Spain, or Germany. And it didn't. It erupted all over Eastern Europe at different points and at different times. It just manifested itself most effectively, unfortunately, in those three places. But it was a direct countermeasure to what they thought was going to be a, a loss of their of their of their nationalist in, interest. I mean, one of the things we're looking at in China isn't a communist country. China is operating as a fascist enterprise. We're, we're dealing with the largest fascist regime in history. And, I, I, and no I, I think, in a technical sense, you're right. I think, in a technical sense, you're right. What's interesting is they themselves they call themselves communists and Marxists. I think technically you're right. It is something much more akin to fascism. And, and that's what they're all about. They, they, they're not interested in, in the world spread of communism. They're interested in the Chinese notion of their version of socialism, and they're willing to spread it in any way they can. I think that's a, a fair assessment. Sure, sure. And that's what's happening here. That's what the, that's what the socialists in this country don't can't grasp, and they don't understand. And they're unwilling to understand their place in history that gave rise to these horrible totalitarian regimes. Not just socialists and communists, but the fascists as well, which were a direct response to them. Well, at best they don't know, Mike, right? At best they don't know. At worst they do, right? At worst they do, and they are continuing on this road. Hey, thank you for your call. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour brings us John Dombrowski. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His radio show is here on 960 at 7 a.m. The Word on Wealth. His website, grandcanyonplanning.com. Grand Canyon Gan, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. John, welcome. How are you, sir? That's a tongue twister. Why did it? Why did I did I do this twice in the last couple of months? GrandCanyonPlanning.com. That's all or, good. Or was it my name? I I, I don't know. It was my <laughs> name. Oh, my producer's pointing. Oh, it was your name, Seth. You blotched your own name. He delights in. Oh. You know, okay. It's 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 a lot lot to to talk about. Thank you, John, for understanding. <laughs> I appreciate. We figured out how many words I say a week here. Really? We, what we, was it? We did. Bill, do you remember what the number was? I think it was between eighty and 85,000 words a week. It's almost as many steps as I do in a day. Right? <laughs> right? So you're going to fob a few. Did you see the World Push-Up uh, world push up, uh, 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 Competition Challenge was just bested? Guy did, uh, one, did 1. 1. 1.5 million push-ups for the year. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, did, I, I thought you were going to say... That I did 1.5 for the day. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, John, you are funny. Talk to me about this. We've been through this a little bit here and there before. Yeah. Congress, there's this headline, CNBC, Congress wants to make more changes to the U.S. retirement system. Yeah, well, we know that um, last year there was a change in the SECURE Act, which had some um, changes to the 401k, um, required minimum distributions, allowing people to withdraw at a later date. At age 72 is when mandatory distributions would, would happen. Um, there's a lot to unpack in this, this article here, um, Seth, and, but uh, just a quick snapshot of things. Once you attain that age of 50, if you're contributing to a 401k, the maximum you could put in between ages 0 and 49 is $19,500 for a contribution as an employee in your employer's 401k plan. So that's a, a nice sum of money for you to be able to be putting away into a retirement account, deferring that income over your lifetime until it's mandatory to pull it out. As I said, currently at age 72 is when it is mandatory to begin withdrawals. But at the age of 50, you can add an additional $6,000. But uh, in 2021, that's been increased to 6500 So in you know, basically, you can put in up to $26,000 into your 401k plan. Uh, but what they're talking about right now is that additional, possibly that additional $6,000 or 6500 that you could be putting in, uh, to have that be put in in after-tax dollars. Okay. Now, so that's interesting, right? Because the reason a lot of people put money in their 401k is, is to defer income. Yeah, right. This plan may give you the opportunity for an option to do it in a tax-deferred manner, possibly or an after-tax contribution, then it would begin to act like a Roth IRA, right? So okay. pay the tax on it now. All the growth for the future would be tax-free. So there is some benefits to that. Um, also, they talked about um, the possibility of a catch-up provision increasing that to $10,000. What's that mean? What's the catch-up provision? The catch-up is that $6,500 I was just talking oh, that about. Oh, okay, okay. That above one. the okay, age of 50. Okay, but okay. they're saying, well, if you're at the age of 62 or greater, maybe you're going to be able to put in even more. Okay. So for those who are working longer, this is an opportunity maybe to defer more income as well. 
Um, and then there's also the possibility, and we talked about this before, that they may increase the age for required minimum distributions mm-hmm. from the current of 72 now, yep. and then maybe in 70, I'm sorry, in uh, 2022, it would move up to 73. In 2029, they talked about raising it to 74, and then by 2032, having it be age 75. So gradually increasing that age over time. So it's just an interesting um, twist on what we already have, giving a little bit more flexibility to individuals. They're not saying you can't still take it out when you turn the age of 59 and a half, but they are extending the age to make it mandatory to pull money out of your accounts. Interesting. That's that's good. Yeah, the other interesting part of this is kind of the student loans. I think we're going to have a big student loan discussion here. So the student loan one here makes its own sense. I don't have any institutional problem with what they're saying here. I don't know if you do. same here. Yeah, yeah. so the idea is a company can contribute even if you don't based on you having student loans if you're actively paying them. Perfectly fine. I think the student loan thing, though, and the forgiveness, that's going to be a big discussion. John going forward. Agreed. That's a Agreed. whole different so a lot, a lot here. Um, some of these things I think I agree with. Yep. Uh, may have to tweak them a little bit, but overall I think it's good for the consumer. Good update, buddy. Thank you. You bet. Securities and Advisory Services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipic and an investment advisor, Glen Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC, and not affiliated. Thank you so much. Sir. All right, John. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Such an uh, interesting email I received last night from a listener, <clears throat> out-of-state listener. That's nice to know, too. And um, his name is Ron. He wrote, Good evening, sir. Thank you for making me feel a little bit smarter after your show. I've been listening regularly for a couple of years now. I have a request for a book suggestion. My little brother will be released from 10 years behind bars next year. He's looking to get caught up on the events of our nation and how we got to the desperate place we are in now. What do you recommend? Such a great question. Uh, history's tough because it's so near, but there's no one I could think of better to call on than our cultural historian as well as a book reviewer in chief, Tevi Troy, himself the author of multiple books, including most recently Fight House, Rivalries, and the White House. From Truman to Trump. No better guest on this question than you, Tevi. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the bumper music of Dire Straits, which does indicate to some degree the state we're in today. Um, and also thank you to Ron for this question. I really I wish the best to his brother, and I really laud his brother's interest in learning about what's happened in the 10 years that he's been uh, devoid of uh, full information about what's going on. You do think about it, you know, you think about it. You wake up. Yeah, Gary Bauer used to give these speeches about, do you ever think about someday waking up and opening the paper and realizing you don't recognize the country you live in anymore, right? (laughs) This could happen. Yeah, so uh, so I, I put a lot of thought into this question, and I'm going to recommend seven books. I'll okay. do it very quickly. Okay. Um, and I'll just say what they are, and then you know, we'll come we, back. We talk yeah. about them. Right. But, uh, and just one quick sentence on Lucky by uh, by Parnes and Allen, uh, Amy Parnes and Jonathan Allen, which looks at how Joe Biden kind of lucked into the presidency because Ron's brother is going to spend, have spent 10 years, uh, 10 years ago, he was wondering, he'd be wondering why. Obama's aging vice president has suddenly yeah, become right, president. Right, right, okay. The second book is uh, Chaos Under Heaven by Josh Rogan, uh, which really uh, shows how the relationship with China went south 
uh, not just in the last 10 years, but over over, over the last uh, few decades. And, uh, you know, if you'd gone to prison 10 years ago, you wouldn't say, oh, China, our enemy. And now you might be thinking Interesting that. observation. So, really okay. good book. Yeah. Oh. Um, two, two books really talking about the, the development of wokeism uh, that, that I would mention. One is How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps by Ben Shapiro, uh, you know, friend, uh, a friend of the show. And uh, that book kind of looks at the, the, the how the woke left is really trying to target the things that make America special, meaning American history, American culture, and America's system of government. And similarly, is is, um, is a more challenging book, but uh, The Age of Entitlement by our mutual friend Chris Caldwell, uh, which really talks about how we, we have a different conception of government today than we did, let's say, in the 1960s. And then, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of changes on the Republican side. Uh, no better book for looking at that than We Should Have Seen It Coming by Gerald Stide from the Wall Street Journal. It really shows how it went from, you know, the party of uh, Bush, Reagan, Bush, and uh, has now become the party of Donald Trump. It's just a different party today than, than it was inside. Really listen to that. And then last, I'll just mention Dope Sick by Beth Macy, which is a depressing book looking at the uh, at the opioid crisis. And that's just a, a crucial thing for understanding 2020s America. I don't know that last one. I, I, I hadn't read a book on that in a while. Is that a relatively recent one? It is a relatively recent one. There's a number of other books. Uh, for this project, Seth, I just specifically decided to look at books I've read in the last two years. Oh, that's smart. And as you know, I read over 100 books a year, um, and th- this was the, the best book I'd read on opioids in, in, that, in that period. But that does not mean it's the only book on No, opioids. right. No, good to know. Good to know. There's about four of them, and uh, this sounds like a good fifth. There's about four I recommend. This sounds like a pretty good fifth one. I'll check it out. I hadn't read one in a couple of years. That's good. <clears throat> Thank you for that. So what do you think? I think well, it'll help Ron and help his yeah, brother. No, this, this, you know, it's, I have no, it's nothing a, but the best hopes that he reintegrates into society in a good way. It's a great list because I often think about obviously not just the last 10 years or 20 or 30 generation, but I, you know, I got to think that the last two years have been so extraordinarily different, pregnant with so much more fire and ice than we are used to in a given two-year period or maybe even in a typical five-year or ten-year period. Is that true or is that um, uh, an ahistorical uh, cheap shot or not cheap shot but perhaps myth or perhaps conceit? Um, I, I'm trying to figure out, like the year '68. I get okay. That's that's different, and maybe, may, maybe substantially different. But are most years like that? Seems like our last year and a half was like that. I think most years, in a way, feel like that. People who are living in the moment say, "Oh my gosh, so much is happening, so much change." But I think these last few years, it really does apply, and there really has been so much change in society. And in a way, you wouldn't recognize. The world of work today, given the, you know how many people are remote, and mm-hmm. the way COVID has just changed uh, the conception uh, of work and who goes into the office, and the transit systems are completely changed, and uh, modes of dress are purchased. And so I think these years were really an accelerant. Maybe there were some trends that were taking place already in terms of our relationship with the workplace and, and our uh, and our modes of dress, but I think uh, COVID accelerated all that. It's. Um it's all that, and it's a changed people, too, that helped accelerate the changes over the last 10 years. So I'm thinking if an 80-year-old who uh, who passed somewhere around the year 1975 or so uh, could be uh, uh, resurrected or, or disinterred and watch our last two years and what we did to ourselves and went through over COVID, he having experienced both the Hong Kong flu and the China flu of 
the Eisenhower administration. Um, if he were looking at the way we used to talk about D-Day versus D-Day's commemorations today, it's a different country in that respect too, isn't it? There's a martial manhood and patriotism that's that's very much gone in a way that uh, it used to be very much present, and I think it explains a lot as well. Yeah, no, I, I think they would look at our response to COVID perhaps and see it as bizarre, yeah. given that you had these other diseases that killed not quite as many people, were comparable numbers of, of people, right. and uh, society just went on as normal. Now, we clearly had a different tolerance for and conception of risk right. today than we did in the past. Right. And if you remember, in the early days of COVID, it was 15 days to stop the spread and all that. But then it became this almost impossible standard of no infection. Right. You can't let anybody get this disease. And um, I mean, it's just a different way of looking at things. And then obviously in previous years, uh, there was no option of a vaccine. And, and we would not be out of the situation that, that we've been in recently today without the vaccine. I mean, the vaccine, given the way we look at disease today, is really the only thing. And I didn't know this at the time, and I would not have necessarily predicted this last March, but it seemed to me that the vaccine ended up being the only thing that could have gotten us out. No kidding. Um, that's an interesting point. Uh, I'll let you go. I, I got a short segment, but I'm, I got a commercial coming up because I'd love to pursue that with you for just a couple more minutes if you have the time, Tevi. Can I do one more short segment with you? Absolutely. That'd be great. We'll be right back with Dr. Tevi Troy presidential uh, and cultural historian. His most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Yeah, I want to pursue that vaccine point. That's interesting. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I just hung up on all my guests. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry, but our, we'll get him back right on. His name is Tevi Troy. He is, of course, the uh, presidential uh, and cultural historian and author of numerous books, including Shall We Wake the President? And uh, I'm, always good for a, uh, I'm always good for a technical mistake. But he was making the point that uh, as far as getting out of the lockdown and getting out of the lockdown mentality, uh, the only thing we could that could have done at his point was the vaccine. Did I say that right, Tevi? I'll let you correct me if I didn't. No, I, th- I think you're right, and, and it surprises me. I, mean, I thought there were other pathways out of this thing, and uh, in retrospect now it seems like the vaccine is the only thing that could have solved it, and, and I'm not sure we would have gotten there in, let's say, a Hillary Clinton administration. I mean, the willingness to let the pharma industry take the lead and develop these vaccines is just not something you expect from the Democrats these days, given how their rhetoric is so hostile to the pharmaceutical industry. And I would urge people to read the cover piece and commentary this month by James Meggs about the pharmaceutical industry and the miracles they performed and the abuse they get in response. Okay, good. I'm, I'm, I, I will read that. But I, you know, I also wonder the vaccine. But it's interesting, too. You do have other physicians. Uh, I like the, this Dr. McCary out of Johns Hopkins. I don't know if you ever read his work. Yeah, good stuff in the journal today. Did he have something in the journal today? He's been talking about, you know, herd immunity should have been able to do this for us. Now, the vaccine, obviously, I guess, contributes to that. But, um, but, you you do think the reason I'm pushing and find this interesting is you do think we're going to be out of this by the end of this year because of the vaccine. We're largely out of it. Yeah, 
And, and look, and the people who have not gotten vaccinated and they're still wearing masks or you know, staying at home, I mean, at this point, it's largely by choice. Now, I understand that there are people who don't like needles or have problems with vaccines. or I mean, There's all kinds of reasons why people aren't. But there is also a choice element involved. Yes. Do you worry about that being taken away? Do you worry about mandatory vaccination? Yeah, I'm not in favor of mandatory no. vaccination. I'm in favor of encouraging vaccination because I think they're, uh, they're incredibly safe. And just for the record, uh, you know, I and my wife and my four children have all gotten it, and my 91-year-old father, and, and I'm glad for it. And we are back to reintegrating into society. Uh, and the people who are choosing not to get it, uh, you know, I understand they're going to make different choices about how to live life given that they lack the protection. Uh, but, you know, for, for the most part, people who want the vaccine have access to it and have done it. And as McCary was saying, though, you know, if you've had the disease, the vaccine may be less necessary, too, which may go into some people's choices. I, I just wanted to point that out as a, as a possible third. Um, it, it's true uh, in a physical sense, right. or in a health sense, but it may not be true in a societal or governmental Understood, sense. understood. Ooh. Yeah, no, I understand that, which is a whole other issue. I have a lot to say. Tevi Troy, you are, a, uh, you are a dear friend to come on on this question for our audience. Thank you, sir. Thanks, and best of luck to Ron and his brother. You betcha. Thank you. God bless. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.